the very latest from our local ag industry. The Farming Show with Dylan Honkoop is next on KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM and KGMI.com. Heating emergencies happen. When your house is freezing, you need help and make it quick. Contact Clean Air Heating and Cooling. Their trucks are ready to go with everything needed to repair your Lennox furnace, heat pump, or fireplace. This winter, keep Clean Air Heating and Cooling on speed dial for all your heating emergencies. Call or text 398-9400 for 24-7 repair service. When heating emergencies happen, count on the professionals at Clean Air Heating and Cooling, a Lennox dealer. Online at callcleanair.com. PNW Perks is heading to Ferndale's Cedars Restaurant Thursday at 8 a.m. It's mealtime and you're starving, so what'll it be? It'll be Cedars Restaurant, Ferndale's classic diner and lounge. Why? It's the warm, inviting aroma of home-cooked, scratch-made delicacies filling the air morning, noon, and night. It's the rich flavors that come from over 40 years of cooking with love. It's the temptation of a hearty meal with huge portions. Or the option to indulge in a refreshing cocktail during the next big game. It's the authentic taste of classic American diner cuisine served in the heart of Ferndale. It's the irresistible charm of homemade pies and dessert delights. It's Cedars Restaurant on Main Street. So pull up a chair. You're going to love being a part of the Cedars family. Check out the menu at cedarsferndale.com. Thursday at 8 a.m., you can get a $50 gift certificate to Cedars Restaurant in Ferndale for just $25. That's half off at Cedars Restaurant. Get in on the savings while supplies last at pnwperks.com. There's a lot going on right now, and broadcasters are on the ground covering all of it, bringing you the weather, the traffic, and breaking news, all while entertaining you 24 hours a day. Someone needs to tell you what's going on around the world and in our hometowns, and that someone is us. We are free radio. We are always there. We are broadcasters. Visit wearebroadcasters.com or text radio to 52886 to learn more. Furnished by NAB and this station. Well, it costs a lot to grow food. We talk about this a lot. I mean, this affects a lot of the issues that we we cover on this program. Farming. It's very expensive to farm. And at the same time, it's not getting any more lucrative on on the plus side of the column. So that margin, as they call it in between, is razor thin for so many folks. And we already see, you know, an increase of farms going out of business because that razor thin margin uh, disappears to zero or, or negative and they, they just can't do it anymore. What's one of the probably the number one thing driving the expense of growing food here in the United States and here in Washington state is labor and labor is very expensive. Of course, people in other parts of our economy know all about labor pressures now too, especially after what we've gone through with the pandemic. Um, but farming and its labor shortage has predated that by quite some time. This has been building. It's only getting worse year after year. Uh, it's something we've talked about here on the program where some activists out there even deny that there's a later labor shortage, which is laughable, um, but uh, also challenging when they start playing around um, doing fuzzy math with the numbers. Welcome to the Farming Show this morning here on KGMI. Uh, I'm Dylan Honkoop, and you know, what's driving, what's making labor so expensive? Labor shortage, for sure, 
But there are some other factors. And, and right now, a, a group, uh, the National Council of Agricultural Employers, is uh, petitioning the acting Department of Labor secretary to change uh, basically a formula of how they determine what wages are for guest workers. Now, hold on. This isn't just going to be about guest workers. Just, just stay with me on this. This affects more than just guest workers, but it starts there. It starts with that program, the H-2A guest worker program. We've talked a lot about this on the show, a lot about um, the controversies surrounding it, the false narratives that activists have pushed against this, their ulterior motives in union building and why they don't like this program. So they call it all sorts of awful, terrible things. Joining us right now with the National Council of Agriculture Employers is their president and CEO, Michael Marsh, welcome to the program this morning. So talk about this, the methodology that our federal government is using to determine the floor, the, the minimum wage, the adverse effect wage rate specifically for guest workers, which they're saying um, by uh, default needs to be higher than the average wage out there because there needs to be an incentive. They want employers to have an incentive um, not to hire guest workers if there are any other domestic workers available. So they're saying the wage has to be higher. You're saying there's a problem here and it's actually artificially inflating wages up and up and up. What's happening here, Michael? Hey, Dylan. Thanks for the opportunity. And you're exactly correct. Unfortunately, the wage rate that is utilized by the Department of Labor isn't really a wage that you find uh, anywhere in the marketplace for agricultural labor anywhere in the world. Uh, the Department of Labor uses a, um, a byproduct of the Farm Labor Survey that uh, comes from USDA uh, to go ahead and determine that most of those wage rates uh, for workers uh, under the H-2A program. And of course, as you mentioned just a few minutes ago, it doesn't matter if you're using the H-2A program or not, you're going to be paying a higher wage rate as a result of the Department of Labor's misuse of this data from the, uh, from the Department of Labor. Uh, the, I, I, actually, our organization has sued the Department of Labor a couple of times on this, this issue. We've also petitioned them in the past to try to take a look at their, their methodology because uh, for, for establishing these wage rates, and I'll give you just a kind of an uh, insight as to how this and part of the reason for this. Under the H-2A program, uh, they're trying to prevent an adverse effect on the domestic workforce due to the employment of H-2A workers. Well, that's really uh, it's, it, it, that's really not occurring, and that hasn't been occurring for quite some time. And as a consequence of that, of course, what has occurred is that they've uh, defaulted to misuse of the USDA's Farm Labor Survey and, and a byproduct of that survey, which is supposed to be used uh, to count the number of workers in the United States, not as a wage discovery mechanism, for a temporary ag labor program. But unfortunately, the misuse of that data by the Department of Labor continues to drive wage rates up and up and up uh, for farmers and ranchers across the country. Um, as a matter of fact, the, the coming wage rate in Washington State for this coming year is going to be $19.25. $19.25 an hour now for those employees. And that, that doesn't even take into account the, the cost of, of bringing the workers into the country and then sending them back home after they've been here. It doesn't take into account the, the, the cost of the housing that the employer has to provide, the visa cost and subsistence while the worker is waiting for his visa in a foreign country uh, that the employer also has to pay, or the provision of three meals a day and or uh, convenient cooking facilities for the workers within the housing. Now, it doesn't take any of those added costs in, into consideration. And for most employers, that's probably another $7 or, or so an hour. Uh, 
which drives your cost up to twenty six twenty five. And if you're in one of these uh, jurisdictions, unfortunately, that is apparently um, the legislature, you know, disconnected again from from farming and ranching, has Im- imposed an o- uh, overtime uh, on on the the, the farm uh, the right. farm workers it, 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 to their objection. Uh, then then of course uh, that gets factored in here as well too. And and it, it's just uh, we're headed for a calamity in rural America, uh, and this has got to be taken. Uh, taking care of well it, it it's becoming impossible for some folks to grow food in the united states it's just too expensive particularly when we're in a global marketplace where so many other countries and we can get into this other countries are you know all, almost universally paying lower wages to one degree or another and some of them abysmally low wages um and, and they're producing the same kind of food with the technology the transportation the shipping the logistics that we have now a lot of those food products grown elsewhere are replacing what we're, we're, we can grow in the United States because we just simply can't compete with the price point that they can, they can produce it for. And it's no one, I mean, our, our big grocery chains, for instance, are they going to turn down a lower price for a similar product? Now, I'll always advocate for American-grown food, uh, whatever it is. I, I think we do a better job growing any kind of food you can think of than just about anywhere in the world, aside from a few niche uh, specialty markets. I mean, we we do an amazing job. We have a huge, uh, extensive regimen of regulations, unrivaled just about anywhere as well. So here we have this situation where all these good things are happening, but it's not uh, it's not sustainable to do anymore um and as you mentioned michael and i mentioned as well what we're talking about here isn't just about guest workers even though with worker shortages a lot of people are saying okay first it's not possible for me to grow food here unless i have people to help me do it if i just have to rely on the people available locally there aren't enough people to do it anymore uh with the demographic changes you know sea changes that are happening in this country over long periods of time um so then oh the alternative is very expensive as you just listed all the additional costs not to mention all the extra inspections and regulations uh on top of so many different things that folks have to face if they enroll and use the guest worker program to bring folks from other countries who don't want to make those um abysmally low minimum wages in in their home countries often and want to come here and and you know do a lot better for themselves working on farms here um, and now they're pricing because of how this works. Their folks are getting priced out of that. And because how, of how it works, it's having an adverse effect actually the other way on the farmer um, to be able to even hire any domestic workers that are available, which they're required to do, because it becomes the de facto minimum wage. If workers are making X wage at one farm, the farm down the road, they aren't going to get any workers for any less than that, right? No, you're you're exactly correct. And, and today, more than sixty percent of the fresh fruit we consume in the United States is is produced by our foreign competition, and more than forty percent of the fresh vegetables. And every year, those numbers tick up as more and more of our food production is coming from our foreign competition. And one of the drivers, and probably the biggest driver from that, is of course the wage rate that employers have to pay in the United States, driven unfortunately by this uh, Department of Labor misuse of data uh, from 
from the Farm Labor Survey. When we look at Washington State, and the, as of January 1, the minimum wage for under this program is going to be 19.25 an hour in Washington State. If you just go across the border to British Columbia and instead of growing your cherries or your blueberries or your apples, just across the border, the minimum wage you'll have to pay up in, in British Columbia is going to be $11.58. Or uh, if you're growing uh, your cucumbers or your, your uh, uh, blueberries or your asparagus in Mexico, mm-hmm. your wage rate's going to be about $1.50 an hour. Now, that's, of course, what California's competing with, with a new wage rate right. as of January 1 of 1975. Well, our, our, like you said, our asparagus here in Washington, our blueberries, our raspberries in a, in a roundabout way are competing with, the, and the list could go on and on, um, and not just Mexico. I mean, when you talk about blueberries, an explosion of production of fruit coming in from Peru, for instance, and other parts around this global marketplace, it, it, pretty soon... With these, I mean, folks that that push for these kinds of ideas say, well, we need to provide people a living wage. That's one of the talking points that is out there. But again, it has to be done. And and that's where we say, well, you know, the global marketplace, they're saying they would probably counter and say, well, just because other countries pay people a pittance doesn't mean that we should underpay people here. But there are still these economic realities that when we get to the point, I think, where we're approaching now, it becomes it's, it's not feasible. It doesn't it's not doable. It's impossible at this point for some folks to continue growing food here in the United States. Right now, Michael Marsh is with us. Uh, he's president and CEO of the National Council of Agricultural Employers here on The Farming Show. I'm Dylan Honkoop here on KGMI. So, Michael, what, what's the, the chances of, of changing how the government is doing. I mean, it's, it sounds so arcane, uh, you know, a wage methodology, basically a math formula and a process of surveying people and coming up with numbers, as we're explaining, that aren't really accurate and aren't the numbers they should be using to do what they say this process is supposed to do. But how does this get solved? What what, what gives here? And, and wasn't this uh, uh, talked about in the previous administration um, to, to fix this? And there was a lot of blowback? Yes, there was. And as a matter of fact, the the best way to get this done would be to have Congress address immigration reform. <laughs> that would, yeah. that would but, yeah. but of course, that's kind of one of those third rails of, of uh, U.S. politics that you never want to touch. Exactly, uh, is is immigration reform. So the Congress could do that, but absent the Congress stepping in and doing it, farmers and ranchers have to do it uh, uh, on their own. And that's why we have brought litigation against the Department of Labor on these wage rates. Uh, and at the same time, we're also petitioning. So we're trying to do it both from the the legal standpoint, going through the the courts, um, but also at the administrative standpoint, asking the secretary secretary and petition the secretary to hold a hearing because we're confident that once that we get the economic data into the record, there will be no justification for the Department of Labor's uh, actions in the way they're calculating wage rates in the United States. Will it come down to the data or will it be a more emotional decision again about some of these larger social justice conversations that our politics seem to to be gravitating toward right now in this country? Well, from our perspective, if if indeed it is not based on the data, if it's it's not based on the facts, then, of course, the secretary opens herself up once again to more litigation because any determination uh, she makes in absence of any facts supporting that determination uh, from a from a hearing, an economic hearing, uh, will, would be arbitrary and capricious and violative of the Administrative Procedures Act. So 
we believe that we have an opportunity here, of course, to have the secretary do what's right. And absent that, opening up another door for us to hopefully have the, have the courts uh, tell the secretary what the law is. Again, Michael Marsh is with us right now. He's president and CEO of the National Council of Agricultural Employers here on The Farming Show on KGMI. I am Dylan Honkoop with Save Family Farming. Glad you're here with us this morning. So, Michael, um, how long does this take? When, when could when could anyone even see any relief? I, I, I would imagine at this point, and again, 1925. I think a lot of people, I think a lot of farmers don't even know that that, that is the, the new um, AWER, the Adverse Effect Wage Rate that's been announced by the federal government for Washington State for people participating in the H-2A program, which, as we just explained a couple of moments ago, becomes essentially in a lot of places the de facto minimum wage for agriculture because of the competitive labor market that exists. How soon until anyone gets relief? I, I don't see that number going back down ever, do we? Again, I'm going to say that depends, and and the timing of this could depend as well, because we've got we've we've had um, a motion for preliminary injunction that we brought in the Middle District of Florida in in federal district court to stop this new wage rate uh, methodology that uh, the Department of Labor just recently implemented last spring, and and so if we're successful with that that uh, motion for preliminary injunction, then of course a district court judge could stop it. It could stop it tomorrow, uh, but unfortunately that we. Have not seen uh, the, the court take that action yet. And, but of course, if the court would rule against us, uh, the district court would rule against us, then we would, of course, have an opportunity to take it up to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals because the Middle District of Florida sits within the 11th Circuit. And the 11th Circuit has been a very employer-friendly uh, Circuit Court of Appeals um, uh, for us. But absent that, or absent that determination from the court, we're trying everything we can to try to get this wage rate uh, in some kind of alignment with what the marketplace really is for agricultural wages in, in, in the United, well, not just in the United States, but yeah. around the world. We have to be competitive. And if, and if the government regulation is going to make us non-competitive with foreign competition, then, then they need to get out of the way and let farmers and ranchers do their jobs because they'll do it. You know, we played a soundbite here on this program. And by the way, Dylan Honkoop here with Save Family Farming, talking with Michael Marsh with the National Council of Agricultural Employers. Um, a couple of weeks ago on, on the program, I played a soundbite of a pretty extreme activist, labor activist in Olympia, um, talking about, well, they were talking specifically about uh, time and a half overtime that's uh, in the middle of, well, just about completely phased in here in Washington State for farm work. Um, phasing out essentially the long time uh, since the 1950s uh, exemption for farm work uh, from time and a half overtime pay, which, as we've mentioned many times here on the program, is actually causing workers to make a lot less money because farms just simply cannot afford to pay 50% more for a significant portion of their labor cost that's already about as high as they could possibly manage and stay out of the red. This activist was claiming um, farmers need to buck up and just pay the additional amount for the overtime. Um, and his, his argument was farmers, even while they've had all these additional costs from overtime, additional costs from the uh, skyrocketing AWER, uh, and so many other factors are still, in his words, quote-unquote, reaping or, or making record profits. 
And, you know, I mentioned that to you just before we came on the air here this morning, Michael. You laughed, and I laughed when I saw that too. Of course, it was kind of an angry laugh on my part because we know it's a bald-faced lie. Farmers are just barely hanging on right now. The the margins are so razor thin. Again, he was making that claim, as we explained, and Pam Lewison with Washington Policy Center was on the air with me when we played that clip. He was referring to the gross numbers. And, yeah, the gross numbers of what people are bringing in uh, are record highs uh, but their costs are also at record highs, even higher. So guess what? They're making the same or less than they were the year before. It's crazy to think that people should just be able to pay this. When 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 does this stop? What gives? You know, from from the perspective of of again the, the social justice conversations that's been going on. Agriculture is not sustainable if the farmer or rancher can't make a dollar every now and again. And unfortunately, uh, some of this activism we're seeing, uh, not just in Washington State, but across yeah. the United States, uh, is, is, is hindering our ability to feed our population. That's a national security yeah. issue. You know, as you were, as you were talking um, about this overtime issue, just, just imagine the difference in the cost profile of, of an apple picked at $19.25 an hour versus time and a half, which would be $28.88. Right. I, you know, there's no margin. There's no margin. In 1925, why would somebody think there's a, a, any margin at all at uh, at $28.88? That it, it's it's a catastrophe coming at, at rural America, and it has to be changed. It's scary because this we could be at a, a, a very serious tipping point for growing food. As you said, I think a lot of people see the environmental benefits of growing food here, certainly the the human rights benefits, since we have a better regulated, better protected workforce than just about anywhere in the world. Uh, Again, environmental benefits. um, If it's animal agriculture, we lead in terms of safeguards for, you know, animal rights and, and avoiding animal. There's so many fronts on which loss of agriculture, loss of growing food from this country, which is what this is forcing, is actually a negative thing for all of those values that the public has, even within the social justice realm. We have uh, just a few seconds left here, Michael, but uh, you know, as in overtime, and ultimately even with this AWER, this hiking, skyrocketing um, minimum wage for, for guest workers, at some point, it ends up hurting the workers themselves because those those jobs are just going to go away if it's not feasible to do it anymore. That's exactly right. We've got we've got farmers and ranchers right now in the Midwest that I know are, are leaving their operations where uh, previously they've been growing uh, uh, more labor intensive uh, crops like yep. uh, 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 vegetables and that type of thing yep. under a circle, and th- instead they're moving to to grow uh, other crops that yep. uh, that you can harvest by combine um, or uh, from atop a tractor. Yep. And 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 there's just so much value uh, in in retaining that food production in the United States. And I hope that some of the folks uh, um, that might be in, in some of the more metropolitan areas kind of catch a clue about what's going on on the farm or the ranch, because pretty soon they're not going to have any farmers or ranchers uh, providing them with food in the United States. The scary prospect. Uh, again, with the National Council of Agricultural Employers joining us this morning, their president and CEO, Michael Marsh, here with us on The Farming Show. Michael, thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much for your advocacy and uh, keep up the good work. I think we'll probably have to check back in for an update as we go because this is a serious situation. Happy to do so. 
in the shop. It makes me sad. It makes me uncomfortable to have to say, yeah, well, it is a nice car. Love the color of the paint. You know, the seats feel great. (laughs) Kirk from Angler, Brian from Dr. John's, and Dan from Bellingham and Burlington Automotive. Eating 10,000 bucks worth of repairs. Join them on In the Shop, 9 to 10 a.m. every Saturday on KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. The latest local news and important topics of the day from the West Mechanical Studio. No gimmicks, just the highest quality systems. 0% interest financing and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Rely on West Mechanical heating, air conditioning, and electrical. Contact them today at westmechanical.net. Get the latest news and information 24-7 with KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KGMI or the Cascade Radio Group. The hits just keep on coming, folks. I'm telling you, it's crazy. Do you have a, a farm or even a, a small business at your home? Where, where does that get its water from where does your home get its water from where does your farm get its water from no we're not going to be talking about water adjudication this is about water quality and a a change in the state regulations uh for your water um yeah it gets complicated but this could really really affect a lot of people certainly in farming and outside of farming as well. In fact, it could affect me personally. Um, We'll talk about my example, which isn't that exciting, but, um, you know, I guess we, my family has a little tiny farm, I guess. But even if it wasn't a farm, it was a business, this could have the potential to either cost me untold amounts of money or quit doing what we're doing uh, with a business or a, or a farm on my property. Why? Because of the well and the state now wanting to test that and, and treat me and everybody basically as if they're guilty until proven innocent. They need to get a permit. You need to, I need to apparently get a permit to um, use our water uh, under certain circumstances. Joining me right now with the Washington Dairy Federation, Jay Gordon. Welcome to the program this morning, Jay. Explain what is going on here. When I first heard about this, I thought, okay, well, this is not good for farming. And then I had more explain, more and more of the detail explained to me. And I'm like, man, this is going to hit a lot of people, not just farmers. Well, good morning, Dylan. Um, this is a policy change by the Department of Health that would, um, interestingly, without state law being used as a background, they just came up with a policy statement that outlined a number of big changes in when and how the Department of Health views you as exempt from what's called Group B public water system permitting requirements. And they changed pretty much everything about what what uh, what allows you to not. Okay, so hold on. Group, a group B water system. Yeah, Group B water system. That's... I'm assuming group A is what, like the less important ones, and group B is supposed to be the more important water systems? Uh, It's size size dependent. Group B is up to 25 people, and group A is above 25 people. Oh, okay. Okay, so, okay. and Group A to be a bigger system. 
And what's even smaller than that? It's you're either one of those or you're just exempt entirely. Well, what the what the what the legislature has granted is two different types of exemptions from Group B. One, if you're a a single house, uh, you're exempt. If you're a farm with no more than four houses on that well, then you're also exempt from Group B requirements. And those exemptions go back, I don't know, thirty years, thirty five years. Mm-hmm. So. If you're not exempt, then all of a sudden you need to get a permit as a group B well, which I guess technically that's what I have at my place then, right? Well, you're not permitted by the Department of Health, are you? No, but it would be a group B well that has been up until now exempt from this rule. But now because we technically have a business, you know, selling flowers that we grow on our glorified garden out of the old milk house and the old dairy farm that I live on. Now we're a business, we're doing commercial activities on that well, and we're no longer, from what I understand with this rule change, going to be ex- exempt from all of the regulations. If you have any commercial well or industrial activity, uh, you would have to, A, first submit an application to be exempt, which, again, the state law doesn't require an application to be exempt. It says you're exempt. But this policy change would require you to submit an application, we assume, to the Department of Health. And that's not just a four-house farm or a farm with up to four houses on it. That's any any single well. And if you have commercial or industrial activities, what the policy says is you're not exempt. Then you'd have to get a Group B public water system permit and all the testing and rules and regulations associated with having a public water system. What, what, a public water system, which, I mean, in my case is laughable. It's my family of five. Uh <laughs> And an, and an old, you know, uh, not in terms of water quality, but in terms of water quantity, exempt permit, exempt well. So many people are in the same position as me across Whatcom County here and across Washington State, particularly in rural areas. It's not a public water system for crying out loud. But because we sell some flowers, suddenly it's a commercial activity and we, we have a public water system? Yep, that's what that's what it would say or does and, say. And so, so somebody who's just has chickens out back and sells the eggs, which you know, live in the, the hobby farm dream, right? It's awesome. That apparently now is if you're using water from that well, it's a public water system because you're selling those eggs. Yeah, well, and there's also another policy in there that's even more, it, as just as problematic, is they decided that you can only have a house or a resident hooked to an exempt, a well is exempt. So if you had water to hooked up to put water in your horse barn or your mm-hmm. chicken shed or yep. your your shop that you work on and repair your neighbor's pickup every once in a while, right? that's not a residential connection, so you also wouldn't be exempt. Oh, good grief. Oh, and, so it doesn't and even have to a, be a commercial activity. You, like you said, fixing your neighbor's pickup and you have a, happen to have a sink in the shop where you rinse the grease off your hands and now you're a public water system, according to the state. Because you have it hooked to a non-residential uh, connection. Oh, and and if you're a farm, there's a farm exemption that says you can have up to four houses on the same well on the same farm. But they reinterpreted that to say only if people that own the farm or work on the farm live in those houses. You can't have, can't have a rental. Know, former employees or a friend or a renter or a neighbor. Or, Which know. a lot of people have. I mean, it's, it's one of the ways people make ends meet in this brutal market for growing food. <sighs> 
Jay Gordon, Jay, Jay Gordon with the Washington State Dairy <laughs> Federation is with us, the bearer of bad news this morning here on the farming show. So the state is actually planning to do this. So what, what are the rules and regs, at least at a high level, that if they say now, again, it's just laughable and ludicrous to me that my well and my property, that would be considered a, a public water system. And so it would be subject to more stringent regulations and require a permit. What are those rules? What does it take to get a per- permit for a Group B well? I don't actually know. I don't, <laughs> I've not had to do that. I'm, I've got a farm just like you do. Mine's a little yep. bigger, but doesn't matter. Four houses on it. And yep. Never, never had a Group B white, so I don't know. Um, probably should have looked that up, but it really doesn't matter because, you know, we're putting, the, we've got a letter that we're going to get a bunch of organizations signed on asking the Department of Health to come sit down with us, which they've not done. So in, in addition to <laughs> battery illegal policymaking, they also didn't yeah. communicate any of this with anybody until about a month ago, we got wind of this policy change and... And so we're so the plot requesting a meeting with the Department of Health leadership to explain themselves. Well, and again, you're not sure on the specific details, but certainly I, I'm guessing it would require some kind of water testing to determine if there are particular contaminants in your water, right? Yes, yes. And now you're saying, okay, they didn't even follow their own rules, the state's rules, whatever rules there are for for due process in making this kind of a change, they just went and arbitrarily made the change. Yes. <sighs> what is with these people? I, this is insane to me. And this isn't just, again, it's, it's farms, people growing food at, at all different um, uh, scales. But also, again, like you're saying, just somebody who has a, a shop out in the barn where they work on the neighbor's pickup truck to help somebody out. Well, that's a public water system now. And you have to have your water tested. Again, we don't know all the specifics that it would require, but I'm sure it would involve you having your water tested. And then what are they going to say? Oh, your nitrates are too high because, or whatever it might. I remember having to move into my house, and I think because of my financing, I was sub- subject to water testing. That was a whole trick, too, because the s- test is sensitive, and it get, throws these false positives and all kinds of problems with it. What a nightmare. And and really an assault in a lot of ways from Olympia on rural residents of Washington State. Um, Jay, where is this coming from? Why why would the state care to do this? Uh, we suspect a bunch of reasons, but, you know, part of it may be going back to, you mentioned nitrates. It may be going back to trying to get more information in some of these communities that may have high nitrates. Uh, don't know. Again, we have not been, you know, Department of Health has not sat down with us. They've not explained this. Um, you know, um, you know, part of what you also mentioned was, you know, why? Where's this coming from? And what problem uh, is, is it even trying to solve? Well, there's a good point. <laughs> um, <laughs> don't don't know. Um, yeah, it's um, yeah, but, it's. But there's you know there there's involvement from what I understand of more than just uh, our state agencies here too. There there are other folks and some some familiar names too who are very interested in seeing these kinds of things happen. What do we know about that? Just we know EPA has been back pushing again on nitrates and um, suspect that they've been in conversations with health and maybe part of the impetus behind this. Um, certainly don't have a name and a phone number and an address book of who did it, but right. it sort of smells familiar. Yeah, a- absolutely um, and, does. And, and, 
And I guess, you know, one of the other points is, is, you know, you mentioned that they don't seem to be understanding, you know, what's the problem? How much is this going to cost? Who's going to be affected? Those are all things that should get picked up in what's called the rulemaking process. Right. You know, or if you're going to pass a law change, you do it in Olympia and you have public hearings and you have to get it through the House and the Senate and the governor signs it. That's, That's how you make law. Then agencies can make rules. And they're already granted authority to make rules where the legislature says they make rules. But those rulemaking processes include requirements for reaching out to affected stakeholders, stating the problem, stating the costs, doing an economic cost benefit analysis, um, a very deliberative rulemaking timeline, public hearings, public comments, um, really becoming more informed about what you're trying to do as an agency. And because this is a policy statement, the Department of Health avoid or skipped all of those precautions normally in creating laws or creating rules, they made this up mostly out of whole cloth with no outreach to stakeholders, no economic impact statements, no public comments. So they feel feel like they can essentially, I mean, they would say they would take issue with the use of this term, but they can essentially legislate um, because this is, yeah, this is new rules that people have to follow from the bureaucracy. Um, And they kind of feel apparently that they have carte blanche. Yes. (laughs) Very frustrating. Again, this is The Farming Show. I'm Dylan Honkoop here on KGMI. I am with Safe Family Farming, and joining me this half hour is Jay Gordon. He is, uh, what's your governmental affairs director? What's your official policy director? Yeah. Uh, There at the Washington State Dairy Federation. Of course, we've talked with his colleague Dan Wood uh, often on this program, as well as Jay updating us. Dairy is very important to us here in Whatcom County. Of course, it's still our biggest uh, farming economy or, or you know, production-wise, uh, what we do here locally in Whatcom County. And it's very important across Washington State, uh, right up there uh, among the, uh, of course, every year there's a little give and take of who's, uh, who's second and third. It's usually the apples that are always top dog, but uh, dairy is right up there as well. So it's very important to know what's going on with the dairy community. Interestingly, of course, this will affect dairy farms, but... It's, you know, this isn't true of all the things that we talk about on the program, Jay. This is one that I, and politically I'm thinking, what are what do they have in their heads to do this? Because this is going to affect so many people. For what reason? It's one thing if you roll out stringent regulations that are really going to mess with people's lives and livelihoods. If there is... A, a real problem that needs to be addressed. And even in those cases, we'll see a lot of debate and heartache and frustration back and forth. It'll be a political football for people here. It's not even clear what the problem is that they're trying to solve directly. Um, and yet it's something that will affect untold thousands of people uh, across Washington state. It's, it, it really boggles the mind as to how they feel that they can get away with it. Process-wise, can this be stopped now? I mean, what, oh, yeah. what, what are the the levers here? It, you know, this is this is this is you know our letters the opening round on this one. But you know, we got legislative season coming up. Um, there, there. This is one of those. This is probably one of the most egregious examples of of a bureaucracy creating policy without legislative uh, directive or authority. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm hopeful and optimistic that this one's pretty easy. They look and go, or or we get the legislators to slap them down and go, you don't have the authority to do this, right? And you will stop. Um, you know, and and you know, this one is like I said. <laughs> 
pretty mind-numbing how you think that you get the power as a bureaucrat to wholeheartedly, out of thin air, create an entire new program, quantify or, or, or delete, essentially, an exemption, make up new rules without rulemaking. Uh, so, you know, I mean, if, if need to be, then, you know, if they won't back up, then we take them to court. And I'll gladly do that pretty quickly and yeah. easily if we need to. Um, well, and let a judge go, you don't make laws, you're bureaucrats, the lawmakers make laws. Um, so Forgive me for being repetitive, but I just keep bouncing back to how ludicrous this whole scenario is. What you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but Basically, anybody with a private well, so anybody that's not on a city, a municipal water system, is going to have to file to get down on their knees knees and beg and plead that uh, they can be exempt. And then some, some by definition, that we've already covered, absolutely will not have a prayer of being exempt. Not if these, you know, if the policy goes through, no. So anybody that has a private well right now, I mean, we've been we've been sounding the alarm about a water rights adjudication here, saying and because it wasn't clear to a lot of folks initially when this came up a couple of you know three years ago now, I guess, um, about adjudication and the Department of Ecology saying that they wanted to move ahead with that. Um, a lot of folks at, at first incorrectly, unfortunately, thought, well, this is just something that the farmers have to worry about. This just affects the farming community, and we've been saying all along, no. No, 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 no. It's not just farmers. This is going to affect everybody. Um, really, technically, even people who live in a city, because as things are hashed out uh, with uh, adjudication, there's going to be costs associated, and that's going to be passed along to their ratepayers in each municipality. Uh, but I digress on that issue that we've talked about ad nauseum here on the program. But this also will affect all of those same private well owners, which is a huge group of of people. I mean, that's many thousand uh, different wells that that would affect here in Whatcom County alone where I'm at. I don't even want to think about how many thousands across Washington State. Every single person, even grandma down the road who's you know lived at the same house for you know, on the same private well out in the country for 80 years is now going to have to file and ask the state, please exempt me from having to get a permit to keep using the same well. And they have to do it every five years. Every five years. And sorry, yeah, six years ago you got an <laughs> exemption, but that was too long. You have to file before that date comes. Or it boggles the mind. Uh, <laughs> and again, just to get back to what is probably the crux of this, there are powers that be that want to probably, again, we're reading into this, use this as a, a, a tool to be able to, as you said, Jay, gather more information then about farms. Um, farms that otherwise aren't subject to this level of scrutiny with their water. Am I correct? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's what we suspect. Now, farms that, that use that, that's the problem statement, I guess. Farms sure that use problem, but yeah, farms that water animals and use water in the milk house or have any level of you know food processing already have to have a high level of water testing, right? Yeah, dairy farms, grade A permit. If you're a manufacturer, you've got certain Department of Ag standards you have to follow. But this would give essentially state government and potentially federal government via state government or local government, who knows, uh, access to more wells and more places where they could say, aha, you have high nitrates, therefore you must be polluting. 
hard to say what they'd use the data for, but mm. you're not, <laughs> you're, it's, we haven't, it's not like we haven't seen that acu- accusations before as well. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe it's just my uh, mind going uh, extracurricular here, but I, I feel like this could, uh, could be part of the MO here, uh, considering all the controversy around this issue. Again, I would ask, what is the exact problem that we're trying to solve? I, I'm not seeing people um, dropping dead here from drinking water out of wells that have been in service for a long, long time. Jay Gordon with the Washington State Dairy Federation sounding the alarm, bearing the bad news for us this morning, what's going on, and, and good luck on this fight, Jay. Let's hope that we can turn this around, be- and hopefully this never becomes a, a complete reality, even though it sounds like the state's already kind of trying to make people do this, right? We've had at least one farmer that seems to have been communicated about this being the new policy, and that oh, we you know, just changed the rules, up, up the temperature a little bit. It's like really, we have we just barely heard about this yeah. thing, and now you guys are already out there communicating that uh, you got to go get you got to go get this application for a permit exemption. So. Change change the rules in October. Don't tell anybody, and then start rolling it out in uh, December or November yeah. or whenever. Uh, it's unbelievable. Jay Gordon, thanks so much for your time this morning. We appreciate it. You are more than welcome, Dylan. Thanks.